Hello and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast about films starring by or about pop stars. Whether it's documentaries or science fiction, hip-hop or country and western, we cover the broadest range of musical and cinematic genres that you can possibly imagine. Oh yes, oh yes. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for The Geek Show, a filmmaker in my own right, uh, and I also write for Horrified, the British horror magazine. I'm joined this week by... Nick Snowden. And uh, since the age of five, I've been found doing that jive uh, down on Devilgate Drive, which perfectly qualifies me to talk to you this week. Yeah, and I'll spoil for that these days. I know. Never mind what I do to get me kicked from the age of six. <laughs> you have to make well, your own entertainment in them days. Just in case you haven't guessed, listeners, this week <laughs> we are talking about Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro, who has been a recording artist since she joined the band The Pleasure Seekers as a teenager in the mid-60s, and since then has sold 50 million records, toured consistently, been in the episode of Midsummer Murders, oh yes, oh, yeah. and and won six Bravo Ottos, an award so prestigious it can apparently only be referred to using the NATO phonetic alphabet. <laughs> when you say her name, though, people will think of a very specific time, sound and image. 1973, Indeed. Can the Can, Leather Jumpsuit. But Liam Firmage's documentary Susie Q, released in 2019, aims to discover a bit more. So I was going to, I normally start these things by asking what your history is with the artist in question, but I figure like that could probably take up the whole podcast this week. Well, no, not really, but um, Susie Quattro uh, is representative of my first glimmerings of musical interest. Mm. And I should, I should point out that she was five. Uh, no, I was five when she was first launched onto the scene, so it wasn't the cat suit that did it. <laughs> um, it was probably a few years later, actually, than when she was current uh, with, mm. with the big hit. Um, and I discovered a record cabinet in my grandma's um, front room. Yeah. And on one side, it had my elder half-brother's record collection, and on the other half, it had my uh, late mother's record collection. So one half of that that I introduced myself to once I figured out the mechanics of the record player was uh, Arrows, Slade, Suzy Q, Bowie. And the other side was Rogers and Hammerstein and Gilbert and Sullivan. An eclectic mix, I think you'll agree. Yeah, great that your mum was into Bowie and Susie Quattro, <laughs> really. Um, very impressed by that. <laughs> yeah, there, I, I think you always have a place in your heart for those records that you found going through your parents' vinyl and latched yeah. onto. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, although uh, the Dubliners, I can take and leave. Granddad loves the Dubliners. He gets very excited any time the Dubliners <laughs> come on the radio or in a film soundtrack or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, never got it myself. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Susie Quattro is 
emblematic of that particular kind of early 70s glam rock sound and I'm not for for once I'm not really talking about Bowie here um, who obviously dabbled in glam but also did a lot else I'm talking like the Slade sound the mud sound that sound where you just assume the entire recording studio was panelled in solid aluminium because yeah. of how reverby and noisy everything sounds yeah. that's her sound I, in fact I, I was going to had I had the time prior to this recording I was going to get myself a top hat and cover it in CDs <laughs> to, to evoke the era Yes, but I, I, I think the thing is, if if you look at the glam rock sound, they most of the bands you mentioned, Mud, uh, were another prime example. And mm. um, what a lot of them were were just they were sort of a hybrid. They were a hybridization of disco chic mm. and rock sounds. Yeah. Uh, so they had the ridiculous fashion thing to it, um, and I think I think Susie Q, although she kind of got sort of loosely labelled with that glam scene, mm. her actual image and her songs and her performance are actually harking back to a simpler time, a more like like a Gene Vincent type of rock and roll, um, and that look. Is very much that sort of leather, the kind of Mal and Brando, yeah. Circa the Wild Ones kind yeah, of biker image, yeah. yeah. But it's a much simpler image than the the rest of the glam rock crowd that Messrs Chinny and uh, Chin and Chapman were working on in their Chinny Chap produced production studios. Indeed, yes, they were like the super producers of the era, weren't they? They, they, they were... were the 70s stock aching and Waterman. Exactly, yeah. Let, let me just think of a... <laughs> We've updated the reference, but not by enough there, I think. Right. Uh... Uh, Chin Chapman were to glam rock what Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo were to 2000s era pop and R&B. Yeah, that's that, that's made it a mere twenty years out of date. I think. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's good for good for us. Yeah, that's more uh, that's more up to date than I've ever been. <laughs> yeah, you weren't that up to date when you were young. Uh, exactly, I was I was <laughs> listening to the Kinks when I was young. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes. Hell, one of the Who was already dead by the time I started listening to them. Blimey. Yeah. What is life? Yeah. Uh, no, that was George Harrison, wasn't it? Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's very apt that you put it back to the 50s because one of the sort of killer formative anecdotes in Liam Firmage's film is that Susie Quattro got interested in rock and roll in perhaps the simplest way possible. She saw Elvis on TV and said, that's it, I want to do that. Yeah. And that's it. That's the whole story, which that's is great. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, whereas in a normal uh, biopic documentary of a rock star, that form addition of the um, nascent talent would have taken like the first 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah. It's like, right, we're in. That's completely, it. yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I, I actually just, from, from watching the documentary, that's what you get about Susie, is that she, she's like that. You know, I'm going to do that. I'll just do it. Yeah, she is a very straightforward person in, I think, a, a pretty positive way. But it, it also, I mean, it overlooks the fact that for a woman back then, saying that you wanted to be Elvis mm. was a lofty goal for reasons other than, you know, Elvis was very successful. Well, this is it. You know, three states across, you'd have been burnt as a witch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I think it is it is possible to overstate the progressivism of glam rock. I forget who said it, but there's that there's that lovely quote about glam bands where someone said uh, you know people talk a lot about the the LGBT influence on glam, but the truth is most glam bands were just uh, a pretty boy and three brickies, apart from Mud, who were four brickies. Yeah, I, but it, it, it was always the fact that. Even though it was a pretty boy and three brickies, they didn't stop the uh, they didn't stop the British from putting on eyeliner. There is that, yeah. But you know, I mean, I, I love Velvet Goldmine. You know the film Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. But I love that as a fantasia about what glam meant to a queer kid in the seventies. The truth of it is kind of more prosaic, I think. Yeah. Susie Quattro, I think, who really was as much of a trailblazer in a lot of ways as as she appeared to be, because yeah. it was not there was not another female star like her at that time. No, and you know when you when you think back to um, some of the other sort of cutting edge female artists that have been covered by documentaries as well like mm. John Jett and that yeah none of those would have happened mm. without um Susie going first yeah and, and breaking through quite a lot of barriers yeah because I mean she we should go back to the start she started off in this group the pleasure seekers with <laughs> her sisters and I suppose they were in concept, a more conventional thing, because you can say, oh, by the mid-60s, there were a lot of girl groups, but they weren't like they, the Renettes. No, they weren't the Shangri-Las, were they? No. No. They were They were very much more... They were a sort of proto-bangles, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that fits. Or proto-runaways. Yeah. Yeah. Proto-go-go's. Yeah. Aptly, yes. That's that's just too many O's in one sentence, though. <laughs> Proto-go-go's, yes. The subtitle machine will fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had a slightly harder-edged sound. They were not manufactured. I mean, I love that sort of 60s girl group sound. It's yeah. really joyful, but it is the product of a lot of very sinister men like yes. Phil Spector manipulating The Spector them. of Spector, if you will. Indeed, yes, yeah. Um, his his career as uh, leader of that organisation, James Bond, was always fighting. Wasn't even the worst thing he was no, attached to. Absolutely. Yeah. 
so we see them and they had a bit of success and there's a fantastically awful bit where the TV host says they have an advantage over other groups in that they play so well, but they also look so fine. And it's like, yeah. are you unaware of how the Beatles were marketed early in their career? <laughs> I mean, it is... Any, any documentary that covers this kind of era... Um... There's people, there's people like you and I, who mm. are of a generation who've had a certain amount of enlightenment through the things that we've watched, the people we've met, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got the subsequent generation to us, who, you know, almost subscribe to outrage. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um. I pay my monthly subscription fee. I demand to be outraged by something. And then, right. you know, they're going to sit through a documentary like this and watching the early days of interviews. And uh, even even although he, he was kind of a, a father figure to him, Mickey Most sort of mm. almost, well, I'll get her over here. I'll put her in a bed. Sit, I'll shut her away for a few months. We'll work on some stuff. But, you know. <laughs> It, yeah, it always reminds me of all those interviews with fashion models who say, oh, I was scouted by a model scout at the age of 13. I was just in Burger King with my friends. And it's like, yeah. even though a lot of them, you know, are not alleging abuse, even though a lot of them have said, you know, I, I had a perfectly fine experience, you can't quite shake the feeling that an industry which is built on older men trying to work out which 14-year-old girl is attractive yeah. or not is yeah. an industry that should be bombed off the face of the earth, if I'm Ab brutally frank. Absolutely. And, you know, pop, pop stars are the same, you know. I mean, mm. you know, there was a lot of outrage, what, 20-odd years ago when Billy Piper first broke onto the charts. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I was just thinking about that the other day because I was about her age at that time. So yeah. I could not really see it as this sort of question of is, is she too young, which I guess is what you're referring to. Well, well, yeah. And, and then, you know, it was only, what, four or five years later that you had the same thing with Britney, but that was far more, that was far more on the nose, what with the Catholic schoolgirl video and... Oh, Christ, yeah. I mean, yeah. that is... Uh, I know some people are really averse to looking back at things and judging them by today's standards, but I think it is very hard not to look at those early Britney Spears videos and not think, oh, Jesus I mean, even, even by the laddish standards of the late 90s and early noughties. You know. Oh, yeah. And people talk about this stuff as though it only happened in the 70s. Like when the Jimmy Savile scandal blew up, people acted like the 70s were the only decade which had institutionalised sexual abuse. But yeah. I remember a lot of really dubious shit about, you know, schoolgirls passing in the 90s without comment. Yeah. And yeah. even as a kid myself, I just remember thinking, this isn't good is it no <laughs> so but i guess back to susie yeah so um i mentioned to you as we were arranging the recording of this uh, mm. that i thought there, there were some interesting parallels to the billy eilish um documentary that we covered a little while ago yes and i i think for me it's because 
that both evidently came from a musical family. Mm. Uh, music was not something that they did against the grain. Um, and indeed formed musical partnerships with siblings in the yeah. early days. Um, the difference is the level of support they got from the family after success. Pole of opposites. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I, do you know what her what her dad reminded me of? It certainly wasn't Billie Eilish's parents. No. Her dad reminded me a bit of the father in uh, the story of the Shanks. Oh, God, the Shanks. Who were this really bizarre, like, 60s outsider group who basically their father just had this vision that he his daughters would be a girl group and he would manage them. And he was not phased by the minor fact that they had not heard any rock and roll music in their lives. <laughs> but he just sort of locked them away and got them to produce this bizarre record that sounds like someone has had the concept of rock and roll explained to them, but has never right. heard any before playing it, because that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and, and I... I just think the father's level of weird conceptual control over the pleasure seekers is, yeah. and his resentment against Susie when she left is very much how I imagine the Shag's dad must have been. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it was like not one member of the family seemed to be pleased that things had worked out for, for Susie. Yeah. There's a lot of bitterness there. And I think I think there's one point where even like sort of 40 years on, she's doing a tour in Australia and her sister comes up to her and says, oh, good show. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was one of the things that I thought the documentary could have done with more of, because the Pleasure Seekers did occasionally reunite. Yeah. Uh, they have done like mostly one-off shows, it seems. But I wanted to know more about that indelicate subject of what it must be like to reform a band where like one of you has left and become a massive star and the rest notably have not. Yes. You know, it's it's basic this is basically the plot of pop star never stop never stopping, only it's happening in reality. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's I mean, I, I get, I get why the initial thing might have felt like a betrayal. Mm. The, the nearest example I can think of is the Leeds fans who got on Alan Smith's back when he signed for Manchester United. Oh man, that was exactly the analogy I was going to make. I, I doubt it. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing was... Um, when that happened, we were financially down the toilet mm. and Manchester United were the only club to make a bid. Right. So where else is he going to go? Mm. In this instance, you know, there was no offer on the table for the rest of the Pleasure Seekers or the yeah. rest of the Quattro Sisters even. It was only Susie that was wanted. It, it wasn't her that said... 
but not them. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Don't want them. They're just baggage. And even in the early days, it sounds like Susie was the focus of attention mm. from it in a lot of the gigs. She yeah. had that voice. You know, she stood yeah. out despite being a bass player, which is not yeah. a traditional front person instrument. No. no. It's a, it's an odd family dynamic, I think. There is that clip very late on where one of her sisters says, you know, I, I would never describe myself as a fan. Uh, she's just my sister. And you think, in another context, that might that, be really sweet, but I did yeah. keep expecting it to end with, I would never describe myself as a fan, more of a, a, a furious resenter of her existence, I yeah, think. Is, yeah, uh, that, yeah that, that kind of sentiment. I, never, I would never describe myself as a fan. I, she's just my sister. I could see that coming from Billy Eilish's brother. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it would land very differently yeah. there, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it seems to it seems to me she gets a lot more love and affection from th- people like the Runaways and yeah, Chrissy Hind we... and those kind of people. Yeah. We should talk about the the people who speak about Susie Quattro's influence in this. You have Tina Weymouth who started playing bass because of Susie Quattro, which, you know, even if she'd done nothing else inspiring Tina Weymouth to play bass is an incredible <laughs> legacy in my book. Indeed. Yeah. It starts off and it's like this this roll call of women in rock. It's uh, Joan Jett, as you say, Chrissy yeah. Hine, Debbie Harry, uh, some more modern faces, Katie Tunstall is yeah. there, and Henry Winkler, which for the longest time is a really unexplained presence. Ah, well, you see, that's because you're not familiar with Susie's alter ego of Leather Tuscadero. I was not, no. My main happy day knowledge comes from, let me just think of the sources, uh, that Weezer video. Actually, that's it. Yeah, just that. Oh, man. You've not lived. (laughs) That statement (laughs) up. We are talking about the same show, right? Yeah, okay. it's it, it it it's the everyday story of a bunch of high school kids in a fifties who hang around in a fifties diner, uh, having jets with their forty-year-old cool friend, <laughs> the Fonz. Yes, it's also it's also the origin of the phrase "jump the shark" for a TV ship. That is true. Yes, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. But yeah, um, for for a long time, leather. I think three seasons, leather Tuscadero mm. was a sort of kind of love interest. Yeah, but for for the Fonz, she was a sort of. I mean, bear in mind, I haven't seen Happy Days since I was about eight. But, oh man, uh, you haven't lived. No, I have. <laughs> Up to the age of about eight, I lived. I watched Happy Days. <laughs> And then I grew up and it stopped being on. So, you know, I've lived, mate. You're the one. You're the one who's not been entranced by the performances of Leather Tuscadero. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, she talks about that, and she talks about turning down a load of acting offers afterwards, including, and, and I was... 
there was something about her being offered a film in Australia, which sounded very much like the first Mad Max. You know, yes. she yeah. was going to fight against a biker gang, and I, she just turned that down because she wasn't that interested in still acting. And I thought, but you've denied the world an exploitation film where Susie Quattro fights bikers. How can how can I sleep knowing that doesn't exist? Well, I I, I think we should. Start a Kickstarter for it. Yes, it's not too late. No, we could we we could we could make it a cross generational appeal movie as well. Mm. What about Susie Quattro versus the biker mice from Mars? <laughs> Once again, our shiny new modern reference points just. Put her out in the early noughties, don't they? Well, that's when I stopped watching cartoons. Well, no, <laughs> I, I progressed from watching cartoons to animes. Fair enough. Yes. <gasps> Susie Quattro versus Alita. Smackdown. Probably a good reference, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I remember Leather's. Tuscadero being quite an important character in um, Happy Days for a while. And the, the thing is, it's not like it's an iconic character. It's it's, it's a sitcom character in a 70s sitcom from the US. But mm. uh, And I think they allude to it in the, in, in the whenever she performed, everybody else was miming. Right. But whether Tuscadero played that bass. <laughs> As you would hope, yes. It's interesting, too, because that is her, or at least it was in the 70s, her major exposure in America. There's a fine, cheeky running gag in this where Quattro, who, if you you don't know, is American, is shown having number ones in Britain, Australia, France, Portugal. Portugal, all over the world. Uh, and then the final statistic is usually some absolutely woeful US chart placing. Or did not chart, 123rd, was not released. She was sacked by a record label. Yeah. Is that... What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wonder if there was just like one of her sisters that went out doing a sort of like smear campaign every time there was a release. Well, maybe, yeah. You know know that story about the Smith fan who, um, when the band split up, barricaded the local radio station and demanded that they play Smith songs? No about it. I was it. (laughs) Maybe, maybe someone in the US on behalf of the ditched sisters did the same thing at every record station in America. (laughs) Demanded that they didn't play Quattro. Maybe, yeah. But also on balance, I do not think the States really understood glam rock at all. And I think it's it's not like one of those things like punk rock, which broke very early in Britain, Mm. but it still existed in America. In many ways, it was healthier for the movement that it did not have that, you know, Sex Pistols-style early breakout. Glamrock is just a weird hole in US popular culture to the extent where 
I will hear, like, uh, Americans will hear the song Come On, Feel The Noise and think it's Twisted Sister. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I guess uh, the sort of big-haired rock we remember from the 80s is kind of glam rock 10 years later. But it's, it's sort of, that's stuff like, I mean, I don't mind Twisted Sister. I think they can be some cheesy good fun. But stuff like Motley Crue does always make me think that someone has sat in a lab and thought, well, glam rock is kind of interesting, but what if we could make it so it sucked? <laughs> but by the same token, although the records weren't selling in America, Mm. She had pull with the artists. She was being invited to support big artists. Yeah, yeah. And it's like this this doesn't compute. You could understand uh someone like um Alice Cooper inviting mm. her if she was like, you know, chasing him up the charts. Yeah. With each release. But you know. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? I mean, Joan Jett, we are told in this film, had to dye her hair in the early days. Yeah. Because everyone said, if, if you don't dye it, you'll just look exactly like Susie Quattro. And you think, well, not in America they won't. In America, no. they won't have a clue who that is. Yeah. And it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. But um, I was completely unaware of the duet she did with the guy from Smokey. <laughs> yes, um, so was I. Yeah, and, and I, I was, I was um, exposed to the work of Smokey quite regularly as a child. Uh, as um, and this is one of those segues that I know you love. I certainly do. Yeah, where, hit where, me with where, it. Where my life has been touched by fame in yes. a big way. So. Um, <laughs> When I was around the age of 13, I, like many young people, had a paper round. Yeah. And that paper round included the bass player from Smokey. <laughs> right. Now, you know the follow-up question. Did the person next door to him write... Well, I can confirm, not called Alice. Damn it! But they did get the Telegraph and Argus every single day. <laughs> oh, that's magnificent. Um, and uh, and so e even now, if ever my travels take me to the uh, city that's in the triangle with Leeds and Wakefield, I find myself singing Going Back to Bradford by Smokey. <laughs> Wonderful. The film itself, I think, is... You know how sometimes when we do documentaries, um, I, I, I've said this recently about King Rocker, which, of course, you yeah. were on the episode for. Um, I say, oh, it's, it's really interesting that you're not doing that standard rock documentary thing where it's just a load of photographs and talking heads and people mm. saying, we've never heard anything like this. Um this is that documentary, isn't it? it this is it exactly that is, documentary. Yeah. I, in yeah. fact, I thought the very same thing while I was watching it. <laughs> um, but I think... I think for that, and uh, the image search I did before the show mm. for a background image 
this documentary actually does something unique in that it shows you other images of Susie Quattro than that one. <laughs> yes, that's true. It shows you the the other images from that photo shoot as well, yeah. which are, are fascinating because she's like got her male backing band sort of clinging kittenishly onto her yeah. while she's standing there with her hands on her hips in this leather suit. And it's a yeah. really wonderful sort of inversion it of is. the way that rock and roll yeah. usually like photographs people and think, genders. I think this is the other thing with... Um, Susie Quattro. And again, it's a parallel that we mentioned with um, Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish is that when that photo was out, it was, it was on every teenage boy's wall. Yeah. Getting away from it. She was a sex symbol. But mm. actually, when you actually look at her on the footage and the, she's not trying to be some kind of sex kitten. Yeah, absolutely. She's just an yeah. ordinary girl from Detroit. Mm. And her stage presence, I suppose she she wasn't seen in the same way as Joan Jett in some ways, because everything about Joan Jett is tough, whereas yeah. Susie Quattro is quite sort of soft-featured, and yeah. she's quite sort of feminine-looking. Yeah. But her stage presence is very macho and... Yeah. I think that collision is interesting in the bits where they talk about how that image was constructed uh, when she went solo are some of the most fascinating bits of the film to yeah. me. Yeah. And it's... The, and, and, and the weird thing is that that's the bit of the film where you think this is where we're going to find out about the creepy record label bosses. Yes, yeah. And it, it really isn't. <laughs> and there is a general lack of that sort of stuff in Susie yeah. Quattro's story. I mean, there is no sort of descent into drug hell, for example. No. She was a lifelong teetotaler who never yeah. touched drugs. Yeah. That does have the, the wittiest camera move of the film, by the way. I, I was starting to think, you know, not every photo needs to be animated, but I will give them this. When she's talking about that and there's this slow, like, crime watch style zoom in on a glass of Coca-Cola that she's holding, <laughs> yeah. that is great. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is, as, as documentaries go, it is quite staid and traditional and um, it's quite a by-the-numbers rockumentary, if you like. Mm. Um, it is a bit eye-opening in the uh, fact that this, as you say, quite macho stage performer, mm. clearly a woman who can stand on her own two feet and go off and become a poet, become a TV presenter, become a chat show host. Yeah. Standing on her own two feet, standing on her own metal doesn't give two shits about what happens career-wise. If it fails, it fails. We'll move mm -hmm. on and do something else. And yet, it does show this really quite sensitive side. Yeah. Where it's the other stuff that bothers her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, she comes across as a really inspiring figure, and I think yeah. maybe this is why the documentary seems to be a 
bit nervous about digging into the stuff with her sisters because yeah. you ultimately you don't want to do a muckraking film about no. someone like Susie Quattro. No. It just feels wrong. And I, I, I do like the point she makes about the fans mm. and the fact that, you know, so she's just come off an 18-hour flight and someone asks her for an autograph. How dare she refuse? Because that fan is yeah. the reason she's had to be on that flight. She's the, It's the reason she can afford to be on that flight. Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, another link yeah. to that Billie Eilish documentary yeah. where she's yeah. talking about how if you have one bad interaction, that's the one that people talk about. Yeah. That's the one that people sort of spread yeah. online and remember you for. Yeah. But yeah, so... Yeah, quite... Even for me, uh, because I grew up with Susie's music, um, mm. it was quite an eye-opener of a documentary. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Whereas you, you young whippersnapper, it's probably the first time you've canned the can. <laughs> yes. Up until recently, I thought can the can was just some gibberish phrase, but now I know it is probably something more. <laughs> Don't do it too often, or you'll have a forty-eight crash on your hands. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love bass. I am a big fan of the bass. I enjoy playing bass. Mm. I find uh, any band, even if they don't play, say, reggae or some other obviously bass-heavy music, is always lifted by a good bassist. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I had never really considered as a vital part of Susie Quattro's stage presence is the fact that her bass is fucking massive. <laughs> no, 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 no. She just holds it really close to the camera. <laughs> this is Father Ted. You can't get away with that. No, I, I, don't think, I don't think her bass is really massive. I think she's just tiny. Yeah, I think it's, it's a perfectly standard face. <laughs> I think it's a... But I, I think I think the, the the key thing with Susie is that it is a proper bass guitar. It isn't a lady bass. Or... Well, exactly. Yeah, such a thing probably did not exist at that point. And they no. do talk about that a bit in the film that when she first picked that up in the Pleasure Seekers, there was a point where people looked at her and thought, Are "You sure about that? Do you want people <laughs> to see you behind the instrument?" <laughs> But yeah, you have St. Vincent's line of signature guitars. I wasn't, no. She has designed a range of guitars that are suited to be played by women that have, you know, cutaways in around the parts of a woman that right. traditional guitars just normally squash up uncomfortably against. Okay. And it is mind-boggling to me that it has took until now for someone to actually do that. Well, you say that, but, you know... That's because you've had trailblazers like Susie Q, Joan Jett, Chrissy Hyde, exactly. just getting bloody well on with it. Yes, yeah. Tina Weymouth. I'm going to mention Weymouth. Tina Weymouth again. Tina, Tina Weymouth's amazing. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And I'm going to say Susanna Hoss just because I can. You, n nobody's stopping you. Susanna Hoss. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
to close out, I would like to offer a, a fact that is, unless I missed something, is not in the documentary, but which absolutely fragmented my mind when I found it out. Arlene Quattro, Susie Quattro's sister from the Pleasure Seekers, mm-hmm. is Chevelyn Fenn's mum. That was not mentioned in the documentary, and that is a oh, that is a fact, isn't it? Susie Quattro is Audrey Horn's auntie. Maybe that's what Twin Peaks is about. That's the secret. Yeah, that's <laughs> the bit that makes everything make sense. That's the clues are all there. There's a reference to the leather truck Cadero because the the, the whole the, diner scenes. Yeah, the double R. Yeah, that's that's what they're for. Yeah. yeah. That weird white room that Audrey's trapped in in Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah, it turns out that her dad just wanted her to start a girl group and wouldn't let her out until she complied. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and Log Lady was just showing her some base holding techniques. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> If ever there was a small town that would have a place called Devilgate Drive, it's Twin Peaks, right? <laughs> yes. Bachelor's <laughs> next album, Damn Fine Coffee. Yes. <laughs> Features the hit single, The Owls and Not What They Seem. <laughs> well, uh, I think that about wraps it up, does it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to give us a like and a review wherever you get your podcasts, because that does help us out. And don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where among many other goodies, you will get a monthly bonus episode of this very podcast unavailable anywhere else. But until next week, when we'll be back with more Pop Screen, uh, that's been your lot for this week. I've been Graham. And I've been Mick. See you again. Mm-hmm.